Amen. All right, so if you've been here for a little while, uh, the last few sermons have been practical and fun. I don't know if I can guarantee that for this one. Uh, This morning, it's going to be much more theological and uh, maybe even philosophical, Um, but I want you to see an important paradigm within the scriptures. The tension, or maybe even the seeming contradiction between divine sovereignty and human responsibility is a struggle uh, that, or an idea that we've all struggled with at some point. This duality, how two things exist uh, side by side, is probably one of the hardest things in the Bible to reconcile. How is it that God has control over all things, yet man is responsible for his actions? How is it that God, the creator of the universe, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God, is not responsible for my sin? How do we reconcile these things? There's something interesting. The Bible never seeks to reconcile these things. The Bible doesn't wrestle with them. The Bible treats these two as givens. It assumes that both are true and operates on that presumption without even asking the question. And so I think a lot of this is our 21st century mind that must have the answer to everything. And so what I'm going to do this morning is um, I'm going to give you a a not-so-satisfactory answer. I'm not going to reconcile them. How do these these two things work together? I don't know. Here's something else I don't know. How is it that Jesus is fully man and fully God? I don't know. Who wrote the book of Romans? Is it Paul or the Holy Spirit? Yes. Is Jesus fully God and fully man? Yes. Is God sovereign and are we responsible? Yes. I'm not going to attempt to answer this morning the why or the how this works because I don't know. Maybe one day in glory we'll know, but until then we will never know. Only I'm going to present what, what we know. Not the how or the why, but what we know. And this can only be known by faith. And so in all the scriptures, uh, Proverbs as well assumes God's sovereignty. And that his image bearers make free and voluntary decisions. We're going to hold these two things up this morning. Charles Spurgeon, when asked about this tension, he says, I never try to reconcile friends. Brothers and sisters, these are friends, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They are not enemies. And so we'll look at them as friends this morning. So before we get into that, um, it is, it's probably going to be a, a bit of dictionary day today. So you're going to hear some uh, theological and philosophical terms you have not heard before or maybe you've never heard a definition for. So, uh, but these are necessary. So two terms we're going to use that are similar but not synonymous. Sovereignty and providence. Okay, so sovereignty is a transcendent term. Sovereignty is, uh, it is, it is a, addressing rule and authority, or authority and power. And so God, as a sovereign God, he is king over all creation. 
It is a transcendent term, meaning it doesn't need uh, anyone else to be true. God is sovereign before he created anything. He's sovereign over all things. And there's this, this kingly power and authority over everything. Providence is more of an imminent term, meaning that providence is God's sovereignty as it's played out in this realm. How God's sovereignty uses secondary causes like time and people and weather to accomplish his purposes. So sovereignty is the idea of who God is in and of himself, and providence is how his sovereignty is worked out from day to day. We're good so far? All right, so those two terms we're going to be using this morning, uh, and they're, again, similar, but there's a distinction. And then there's a guiding principle that we're going to see in our text in Proverbs. Um, so this, this idea of God's sovereignty helps us to understand God's watchful eye, and then God's providence helps us to understand his mighty hand, uh, respectively. And this guiding principle, when we look at our responsibility, it's not what we do or how polished up we are on the outside. But the guiding principle that connects these two and is our proper response is the state and attitude of our heart. God in his sovereignty sees all things, but what is most important that he sees in us is our heart. And we'll get this. Uh, You may have noticed, but our time in Proverbs, heart is mentioned 80 times in the book of Proverbs. 31 chapters. And 80 times heart. And you'll see how often it comes up today. Our almighty God sees all things, but he's not limited to the external the way we are. We have never seen the state of someone's heart. We can, we can see what flows out of the mouth. We can, we can make our assessments at what people's motivations are, and we often make our judgments about what people's motivations are. That's all God sees. So I want to show you uh, in 1 Samuel 16, 7. There's a, this is probably the, the, the best verse for this. Um, because what is most important when we think about our response to God's sovereignty is not our appearance. It's not how appealing we are to one another. It's not our actions. It's what God says when Israel chooses for themselves a king. So 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. That's what we do, right? We pick Saul's. God picks David's. We pick men who, are, who fit our image. We want the strong, um, the, uh, strong good-looking one. That's how most people pick president or you know whatever uh except when we don't have that option but (laughs) but what does god look at we look at the superficial because we're superficial creatures but the lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart and so i want us to dig a little deeper this morning And this is a time for reflection. Do we rest in and believe in the sovereignty of God truly? And do we examine our own hearts and our responsibility? Do we still see as man sees? Do we judge ourselves and others by external factors? 
Because Scripture often calls us to see with spiritual sight. But we're so superficial, even with eyes to see, we lose sight of what matters in the eyes of the Lord. All puns intended. We often favor our natural senses and what we perceive to be true. And the scriptures call us to see with spiritual sight. Like Lionel's Eye of Thundera, but much better. Let's pray. I always can get David on those ones. All right, let's pray. If you didn't grow up in the 80s, we'll explain to you later. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that wherever we are, you are. You seek a people to worship you in spirit and truth. We don't have to go to a mountain. We don't have to go to a temple. There are no more sacred locations because you've put your spirit within your people. Wherever your people gather, there is a temple of the Lord. How amazing it is that our sovereign, transcendent God is also eminent. That you providentially work the circumstances of the world for our good and your glory. And forgive us when we fail to praise you for it. Forgive us when we try to limit who you are. We try to put you into our terms. Or we resist what is right in front of our faces. You are God and you alone are God. Let us be like Job, that when faced with your sovereign providence, and even though it frustrates our ideas, our response is not, I understand, but I repent, because I cannot understand. I'm not made to understand. I'm made to worship. Help this time to train our hearts and minds and actions to be in service and worship of our great God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. And by him we pray, amen. All right, so I think in your notes this week you should have, I didn't look, but you do have the references this week, right? Okay, Uh, because we're going to go right through those. Starting in Proverbs 15. So we're going to look at this tension, this, this, this duality, divine sovereignty, and human responsibility in the book of Proverbs. Uh, and again, we're in this middle section. We've dealt with all the poems already in chapters 1 through 9. Uh, and I'm going to use selections. I'm not using every example, uh, but they're going to be representative of some of the things we need to know. So beginning in verse 3 of chapter 15. This could probably be the thesis verse on God's sovereignty. Within this verse... We see omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. All knowledge, uh, he is in all places, and he has all power. Verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Let's, let's break this down. Uh, we've seen a lot of Hebrew parallelism in these, in these proverbs. They're what's called couplets. It is a uh, line and then another line, and it's either a comparison or a, a contrast. Look at the comparison here. And so these, these two parallel lines are complementing one another. The eyes of the Lord complement, keep watch on every place and every person, evil and good. So you've got 1A, 1B, 
to A to B. So first, the eyes of the Lord. Does God have eyes like we do? No, thank you. Um, he doesn't, but does God see? And so, do, and so how do we as humans understand that God actually sees then to attribute to him eyes? We call these anthropomorphisms. Basically, um, we take human characteristics and we attribute them to something, someone who's not human. So we attribute human characteristics to God so our little pea brains can begin to understand how he can see. And this, this God, this Lord who watches over all places, he's keeping watch. This is vigilant. This is active. Not only is he omnipresent, so you know, in every place, but he's keeping watch as a watchman does. There's this picture in Ezekiel 33, and there's this picture in, uh, in uh, those times where we don't necessarily need this, but if you lived in a village, if you lived in a fortress, if you were in times of war or even in times of peace, you needed watchmen. You needed faithful men who would stay on the towers or the sides of the walls and not sleep. Why? Because an enemy could come at any time. And the watchman, he held the lives of everyone else inside in his hand. And if he fell asleep on his post and the enemy came, they may all die. And he would suffer the consequences. Ezekiel was made the watchman of Israel. I'm going to give you a message. You better relay that message. When evil comes, you tell them. When good comes, you tell them. But what could be greater comfort than the Lord himself is our watchman? The Lord himself keeps watch. He is keeping watch. Never slumbers, never sleeps, never stops. This is not only his omniscience and his omnipresence, but his omnipotence. Because this is not an impotent watchman. He is willing and able and ready to act whenever needed. This implies that he is not just observing, but he is vigilant in his observation and can observe every place and every person. Here's the second, uh, the, the second parallel in this couplet. Every place and the evil and the good. Now remember, we've been going through Proverbs, we've been looking at the two paths. And I think we often think about divine sovereignty. Well, God is over the good path, and Satan is over the, 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 the path to death. I've heard so many Christians say this. Well, well, that's not God's will. Well, Satan's over that. As, and so many people see God and Satan or good and evil is in this, this, this uh, tension, like it's 50-50 on either side. God is over both paths. There's nothing outside of his purview. There's nothing outside of his control. And even as uncomfortable as that makes us, God is sovereign over evil. Because you don't want the alternative. You don't want a God who is powerless against evil. I would much rather put my trust in a God who uses evil for good purposes than a God who is frustrated when evil happens. So many Christians, maybe some of you in this room, have a small ver version of God. Maybe you think he gets frustrated as if he is powerless when evil happens. This evil and good, another term, it's a, it, it's a mirrorism. And so a mirrorism is using two words that, that span the entirety. 
young and old, rich and poor. Basically, the good and the bad, everybody. This is a Hebrew way of saying God sees all places and all people, no matter where they are. This is our God. This is our sovereign God. And what is he looking at and looking for? I want you to turn to Psalm 33. The psalmist here lays this out. This is almost a commentary on this verse. Psalm 33, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. I want you to see the play between sovereignty and responsibility here, and what is the response of man at the very end. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Sound familiar? Like we just looked at He who fashions the hearts of them all. Heart is a big theme. God is the one who fashions hearts. Notice what is at stake here. This is not just moralism. Look at the the language. The king is not saved by his great army. Doesn't matter how powerful you are. This God is more powerful. A warrior is not delivered sending him to salvation by his great strength. Don't trust in kings, don't trust in strength, don't trust in riches. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Not a soul. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Notice his eyes are on all, but his eyes are on those who fear him in a particular way. He is their hope. He is their salvation. Not men, not horses, not chariots. And what is our response? Notice that's in the third person. Here it now goes to the first person in these last three verses. How does man respond to the sovereign God who knows all things, who is the only hope for salvation? Oh, our soul waits for the Lord. For he is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Brothers and sisters, that's what I want for us this morning. When we see all these things about God's sovereignty, this should be our response. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. He is our shield. We find our gladness in him. We trust in him. We hope in him. That is what he looks for. That is what it means to fear the Lord. Rest in him. Trust in him. Hope in him. Find your joy in him. That is what the, when the Lord looks for the heart, that is what he is looking for. All of your good deeds, all of your, you can clean yourself up as much as you want on the outside. But that is the standard, and we'll get there later. All right, let's look at the next one. This is Proverbs 15, uh, verse 11. These will begin to build on one another. Verse 15, 11. Now this is building on, last week we looked at discipline. Verse 10, there's severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. The Lord disciplines those he loves. It is a relational, covenantal discipline that you want. It's not this discipline. If you you refuse rebuke, you will die. And what happens to those who die? 
They go to Sheol and Abaddon. So these are similar terms, but they're distinct. So they're both poetic terms. Um, Sheol is a poetic term for the grave or the place of death. Uh, it's very vague and nebulous. But Abaddon is it's, it's the place of perishing. It's not just this dark, empty place. But you are dead, you're in the grave, and it's uncomfortable. And it's really uncomfortable. But notice why he brings these up here. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. God's sovereignty expands, extends to those who have died. All those who have ever died, those who are in the grave, those who are being perished, he sees them. Another thing that Hebrew parallelism does often is it starts with one line. And the first line makes a point, And the second line amplifies that, that point. That's what's going on here. And before you receive that discipline from verse, 15, verse, verse 10, know he's looking at your heart. So if the Lord sees all of death, all those who are perishing, how much more the hearts of the children of man. God is so sovereign over the living and the dead. If he's sovereign over the netherworld, how hard do you think it is for him to be sovereign over this world? And so the parallel shows us, therefore, if he looks on them, how, do you, how easily do you think it is for him to look on you? And when he looks on our hearts, what does he see? If you've been around your own heart for a few minutes or you've read the Bible for a little while, our hearts do not equip us, or acquit us. They condemn us. Jeremiah tells us that it's deceitfully wicked above all things and no one can trust them. If someone was to rip you open and look at your deepest desires, your deepest hopes, your deepest fears, your deepest feelings, what would they reveal? We've got a heart problem. Our hearts are as dead as Sheol and Abaddon. This is why we need a new one. This is why the emphasis to circumcise your heart was given to the gathering in the wilderness. This is why the new covenant promise is that this stony heart that has no life in it breathes for the first time. It beats for the first time. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. This new covenant promise, because we have a heart problem, because our hearts are open and bare before the Lord, we need them to be, we need new hearts. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And don't forget this line. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is an act of God's sovereignty. Even our, our willful obedience is because God makes it possible. Because he takes our dead heart and gives us a living heart. So that when he sees our heart and examines it, if indeed you have been made new, if indeed you have been born again, he sees that heart. Not the wicked, stony heart that you were born with. That only leads to death. More about that later. Uh, let's continue on chapter 16. So chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, this is a poetic unit. Uh, you can mark this off in your Bibles if you like. I'm going to show you why. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. This is a sermon in itself. But I want to show you how to uh, 
read this particular passage, uh, but it's helpful the way that this is set up, and the poetry is beautiful. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. I want you to notice a couple things. Notice the mention of the Lord in every verse but 8. Notice the uh, interplay between the Lord and the actions of man, and notice the use of heart and where heart is placed in this mini poem. Proverbs 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I know I read that just a moment ago, but if you're paying attention, there are bookends at the very beginning and the very end, what we call an inclusio. Everything else is included in between those first two lines. Notice they both deal with plans and the heart. And then the response is the Lord. So heart begins and ends this section. Where is the only other time heart is mentioned in here? Anyone notice? Verse 5, the very middle. If we've been studying poetry and text very long, what do we call that? A chiasm, the Greek letter chi. It's an X. It draws your attention to the middle. Man plans in his own mind, in his own heart. You know, the Hebrew concept of heart is uh, your your hopes and your dreams and your ideas. It's the center of who you are. But in the center of this section, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. What's the point of this whole thing? You can plan. You can try to direct your steps, but don't you dare be prideful because the Lord sees everything. He knows your heart. And everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Nine is pretty much a summary, and it kind of defines our theme. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We can plan, but the Lord establishes. So there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm gonna, I, I intend to do this. But if you put your trust in your plans, if you are so arrogant to think that you can plan apart from the sovereign God, you've got another thing coming. We must say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord, what the Lord wills will come to pass. And so, yes, we make plans. Uh, we establish things in our mind, but know that those we write in pencil. We only write in pencil, but God writes in pen. He establishes the way, and so we hold our plans very lightly. And the Lord knows that our plans are attached to our heart. What we most desire, we will do. And so do we put all our stock into our heart and our desires? Or do we hold them open-handed and say, 
you are sovereign God. I'm going to do the best I can, but I am willing to correct and redirect as you will. And that really is the heart of this section. And don't be arrogant thinking you know more than God. That's the lesson for that one. Let's go to the end of this chapter, chapter 16, verse 33. A lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh, so this is not gambling, um, as some often try to make the, the uh, case for it. The lot's interesting. So what a lot is, it was a particular stone or piece of bone or shard of glass or whatever, um, and it would either be cast into a lap or thrown into a cup, kind of like the little Yahtzee thing that you shake up and you roll out. And this actually was a very serious act. Uh, this was not just done among God's people, but it was, uh, it was kind of something done in the ancient Near Eastern world where this is how they would discern the divine will. And so this is not gambling. This is not dishonoring to God. Um, it's basically, it is a great trust in providence. Lord, we don't know what to do. So we're going to cast this lot, this stone, and we're going to trust that you are sovereign even over the roll of this dice. We've got a few examples of this. Remember Jonah? We went through this, this study before. And even these, these pagans were more consistent in their trust of the sovereign God than Jonah. They're on the ship, and they're getting beat around by the waves and the, and the storm. And they say, let's cast a lot to see who's responsible for this. God showed his sovereignty in that moment because that lot fell on the one who was responsible. Fell on Jonah. And Jonah volunteers to throw himself overboard. And you know the rest of the story. Uh, we also see this at the beginning of Acts. And I want you to look at that because I want you to see the apostles' motivation for this. So obviously there's 12 apostles and uh, one of them is no longer apostle because he's dead and he's the son of perdition. So they need to round the number up to 12 to represent the new tribes of Israel. And so um, the disciples and Peter speaks up here. And so they set forth two men, Justice and Matthias. But notice how they pray and notice what their motivation is behind this lot. And they pray, this is uh, Acts 2, or excuse me, Acts 1, verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. This is not gambling. This is, Lord, we know you know the hearts of all, and we don't. This is beyond us. Show which one of these two you have chosen. How do you show? Uh, to take the place in ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots. For them, they drew straws, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. It's interesting how, when you completely trust in the sovereignty of God, you say, "Lord, I don't know what to do. You, if I go left, you'll be with me. If I go right, you'll be with me. I trust you." And wherever, and if we're not making a sinful decision, we can walk in that direction and trust the Lord. Uh, but we will often put so much stake in our decisions. I have to make the right decision because all of the dominoes of my life are going to fall into place after this, and I'm trying to plan everything else. No, we trust the Lord. And sometimes you just flip a coin and say, all right, Lord, I'm going that way. And I trust that you brought heads to me in that sense. I'm not telling you to be foolish and to not prayerfully and biblically seek counsel on something, but if you come to the end of it, and you've done everything you can, and your heart desires that God be pleased, 
Flip a coin. It's okay. Uh, let's move on. Verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 3. Chapter 17, verse 3. A servant who, um, that's verse 2. A crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Man. The smelting, or the, the, the melting point of silver, 1,763 degrees. Melting point of gold, 1,948 degrees. When the Lord tests our hearts, it feels hotter than that sometimes. These two things are not put together by accident. The refinement of metals is an intense and necessary process to increase purity and to remove impurity. The Lord does the same thing. This word for test here is not like taking an exam. It is testing in the same way you would test gold. You put it under the fire and you see what it's made of. You turn up the heat and see what the substance really is. And you burn off whatever is unnecessary. This is common biblical imagery for God sanctifying and purifying his people. And this is the process of what the Lord works in us. He turns up the heat. In his sovereignty, he tests hearts. And so we talked about this before with discipline last week, but it's good to, to build off of this. We often think, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why would you do this? I don't deserve this. How faithful have I been? And all the excuses we make for ourselves. He turns up the heat because he loves you. Because he wants to remove impurity. And guess what, guys? We don't grow when things go easy. We aren't purified when everything goes the way we think we want them. Because then we begin to trust in ourselves and we think we're good. It is only when he turns up the heat, when we go from 10 carat to 14 carat to 18 carat, to 24 carat. We are so consumed with our own actions and the consequences of our actions, but God tests our motivations. We want to clean ourselves up on the outside because we want everyone else to think we're good. But he works on the inside first. And as Christians, moralism says, let's clean you up on the outside first. Let's get you talking the right way and dressing the right way and saying the right things. But the gospel says, no, your, your heart is dead. It needs to be tested. It needs to be purified. And we ought to be people who seek to see as God sees. I want to give you a couple examples of this. I want you to see the gospel connection. So the end of Zechariah, this prophecy about the one who will come, the, the righteous branch. Zechariah 13. There's a fountain open up in the house of David. Notice in these three simple verses, there's a, it's, a, it's poetic, it's prophetic. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Who do you think that's talking about? Who could ever stand next to the living God? What shepherd would ever stand next to the living God? Except the Son of God. And what is that? His sword. The sword of the Lord against the shepherd, against the one who stands next to him. God is sovereign even in the striking of his son. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Here's the test. 
Christ on the cross, will you stay or will you flee? I will turn my hand against the little ones. Yes. Those who want nothing to do with Christ. Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me in this dying world, I will be ashamed of you when I come in my Father's kingdom. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off in perish. The wide way. The way to evil, there's, there is more dying on their way to death than are on their way to life. Two-thirds, and this is not an exact equation, it's to give you an idea. It's much bigger, those who will die, than the one-third that shall be left alive. But what will he do to the ones who are left alive? The refinement is not for the ones who are perishing. The furnace... There's a different kind of furnace. That destruction is different. But this one, I will put this third into the fire. The ones who are alive are the ones who are put in the fire. And refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. Why does God do this? Why would he put us through testing? What's the result? They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This is the gospel. The father strikes the son. The sheep who is the shepherd. The sheep scatter. Most are going to die. Most want nothing to do with him. Some will stick around. They will live. And the ones who live, they're not just going to live as tarnished 10 karat gold. He's going to turn the heat up. They're going to sparkle like fine jewelry. They're going to glow for all to see because they declare and proclaim the name of their God. He does it because he loves them, because he's uniting a people to him. And so this this testing is a good thing. Peter also picks up on this. This is why we embrace trials. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice where Peter begins. He begins with this gospel exhortation and celebration. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Praise God. Notice where Peter starts. He starts with the gospel, the reality that you must be born again. And if you're born again, you have all of the blessings of Christ that will never be taken away from you. And you await that salvation. It will be perfected in him one day. Rejoice in this. This is where we rejoice. Why? Because of what comes next. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. The gospel comes first. Because we need the gospel reminder. We need to look back of our hope, of our salvation, when we go through trials. And why do we go through trials? Tell us, Peter, please, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, here's that testing again, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is consistent throughout all the scriptures. The Lord sees the heart. The Lord refines his people. This refinement comes out of the gospel. And it is for his praise and his glory. Why? Because our faith is proven genuine. 
because he removes the impurities. He purifies us. Amen. All right, back in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10. I've got to move a little faster here. Chapter 18, verse 10. This will sound familiar because we looked at verse 11 in, in, uh, a few weeks ago, but I want you to see these things together. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Remember, uh, name in Hebrew, um, in uh, the, the, the Hebrew language, the Hebrew idea, it is your, your reputation, your identity. It is God himself. The Lord himself is a strong tower. This is where you're safe. This is where there's salvation. The righteous man, the wise man, those, the man with a cleansed heart, he runs. He actually runs here. He's not a robot. He's not forced to. But when he's given us new hearts, we want to run to him. We find our refuge in him. But verse 11, notice the contrast. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, but to the rich man, the man trusting in his wealth, his wealth seems like a strong city, yet only in the high wall of his imagination. The Lord himself is a strong tower. The rich man himself is a strong city in his mind. This imaginary safety. So where do we seek safety? Do we know the strong tower? Do we know how to run to it? Do we know that the Lord himself is all we need? Our sovereign God, we can go to him, and in him we are safe, even if the world around us is crumbling at our feet. Or do we, have we created a fortress in our minds? Like, remember when you were a little kid, and you created that, like, pillow fort in your parents' living room? And you thought if you threw a sheet over the front that no one could see you, and that you were safe. How many adults are still doing that? They think the world is as safe as their parents' living room. And they've barricaded themselves in with the pillows of comfort, of wealth and success and hopes and dreams and all these things, thinking that if I just pull the sheet over my head, no one can see me. That sounds foolish, right? And it's cute when kids do it. But it is stupid when adults do it. Every one of us has been guilty of it building this strong fortress in our mind and not running to the strong tower. All right, chapter 20, verse 24. Chapter 20, verse 24. A man's steps are from the Lord. How, can, how then can man understand his way? Solomon definitely understands the frustration here. Okay, God's sovereign over my steps. How am I supposed to understand what's going on? Our actions... Even our actions, even our steps are according to God's providence. This blows our mind, right? Because I'm actually taking these steps. Again, I'm not a robot. We're not fatalists. God, in such a way, upholds his sovereignty, and we're actually taking steps. How can we understand this? And we can be honest here. We often get frustrated because we can't understand this. How do I reconcile God's sovereignty with my responsibility. We can't. Solomon, who's wiser than all of us, says, how can we understand our way? We can't. But the wise rest in the Lord. The wise rest in this. Day by day, step after step, he's sovereign. I don't understand my steps. But the Lord does. We, when our hearts seek after him, 
We desire to please him. We trust him with our actions. We trust him with our consequences. And this is a great place to be. I don't understand what's coming next. And that's okay. My God is a strong tower. My God is sovereign over all things, and my God is good. And if you remember everything we said before, my God sent his son for me. That I might live in him and have a new heart. And he sees that heart, and he sees the son and not me. When you tie the gospel into the sovereignty of God, it becomes a deep sigh of relief. Amen. Verse 27 takes it a step further. Same chapter, chapter 20. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. This sounds like other scripture that we'll get to in just a moment. Spirit in the Hebrew. Ruach is uh, breath. It is life. And so essentially, if you're breathing, if you're alive, this one's to you. If you're alive, your very breath, your life, is, is, illuminates the inside of you. God has a lamp on the inside of you, and it means that because you're alive, he sees. So he sees the external, the, the steps, and he sees the internal, the breath. There is nothing that is hidden from him. So what do we do then? If we are wide open for him to see, we... We pray like we did earlier. We read Psalm 139 in our uh, call to worship, but I want to read the last two verses again. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me or test me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This should be our prayer. This is our self-examination right here. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. If there's any grievous way in me, correct me and lead me for your glory. Because this is not optional. He doesn't turn the lamp off as if he can't, as if, as if you don't want him to see inside you, he can't anymore. This is why we study and we seek to be tested by his word. Uh, this may have brought to mind Hebrews 4. I want you to see Hebrews 4 here again. This theme of heart is all throughout the scriptures. The connection between the Lord seeing the thoughts and intentions of men in 139 and the lamp of the soul at the end of 139. But Hebrews 4, the word does the same thing. Hebrews 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is why God's word is so necessary in our lives. Because it lays us bare, as the writer goes on to say, no creature is hidden from its sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. There's that anthropomorphism again of whom we must give an account. You're going to have to stand before God one day. And if you are in Christ, you can take complete confidence in your salvation. But if you are in Christ, don't you want to be pleasing to him? Don't you want to graciously and gratefully respond to the God who has saved you? And it is his word that makes us uncomfortable sometimes, that rips open our heart and tears out the old man in the old flesh, day by day, little by little. But you want to stand as shining gold when you stand before him one day. You will be blameless one day. 
But we work out our salvation in fear and trembling because he has worked in us. And because he sees our very heart. And we conform our heart to the image of Christ by his word. All right, chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. Proverbs 21, 1 and 2. This is a great comparison of sovereignty and responsibility. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Notice, heart, again, begins and ends this this little section, sovereignty and responsibility. Remember, God's providence is how he orders his sovereignty in the affairs of man. Even the highest authority in those lands. Like, we don't think much of kings because to us, like, kings are kind of figureheads and jokes. But if you lived in that culture, the king was everything. Your nation rose and fall, fell on whether your king was good or not. Your king could determine whether you eat or you go to war or you have time of, of peace. Your king, you thought you was divinely appointed. Even the king, even the highest authority, God moves his heart as if it were a stream. He directs it like we redirect water at the beach. He directs his heart. He wields hearts. This is why we don't fear leaders or governments. Can we talk about this for a moment? This is why we don't put our confidence in men. In leaders, some of our leaders don't even know where they're going or who they are, but God does, and he put them there. I don't understand it. I've got questions for him, but, but I trust him. He leads them as a stream of water for his purposes, and praise God, it's not my purposes because I would have screwed this up. Already, It is often confusing, but the sovereignty of God has to be comforting. Because even when it makes no sense, God is in complete control. Even when the wicked seem to prosper, God is in complete control. I love what Thomas Watson says about providence. And it's a longer quote, but I want to read all of it. Uh, it's still a longer quote out of a longer quote, but I'm going to read all of what we have here. Providence is the hand that turns all the wheels in the universe. And Thomas Watson has a beautiful way with words. It is the pilot who steers the ship of creation. Providences are sometimes dark, often difficult to decipher. God often writes in shorthand. His providences are, always, are often secret, but always wise. The transactions of providence are not seen clearly at first, Like the painter, at first he makes a rough draft of the picture, first a hand and an eye. But when he has filled up every part and laid on its colors, it is beautiful to behold. We who live in this age of the church see but a rough draft of God's providence. But when we reach heaven and see all of the lineaments of God's providence drawn out and completed, all will be perfection and wisdom and mercy. Kindness and love will seal the whole. Amen. Brothers and sisters, don't get caught because we are one speck on the timeline of God's sovereign plan. When we look back, 
and see the glory of what he is putting together, we will see how perfect it is and how wise it is and how good it is. But right now, let's just enjoy the painter. Thomas Watson goes on to say that providence should be our diary, not our Bible. In that we take note of God's providence, but we don't use the affairs uh, or or the, the, the actions outside of us as our inerrant word. There is only one inerrant word. That's why we don't read the tea leaves or look for signs in the trees or whatever else you do. All right. There's God's sovereignty. Here's man's responsibility uh, and God weighing the heart. Again, Proverbs brings it up, so I must. Verse 2. Every, still in chapter 1 of Proverbs, every way in a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. How often are we consumed with being right? How often are we consumed with making the right decision or winning an argument and feeling or looking right in front of others? But what is God doing the whole time? He's weighing the heart. We ought to regularly examine our heart and our affections so that we may grow in the Lord, that we're not so consumed with being right or seen as right, but being right before God. We should take stock in his love and his approval over man's. How different would our ways be, our lives be, our steps be, if we thought more about what pleased God? If we remembered more, he weighs our heart and not our successes and not our failures. How much stress would we save ourselves if we weren't consumed with being right all the time? All right, the last two we're going to look at at the end of chapter 21. This is a great place to land. Verse 30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Most importantly, the knowledge of God's sovereignty is supposed to assure the believer of his constant care and his constant provision. We, as his people, are to take comfort that nothing can avail against the Lord. Let's read this again. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel. Every time you think, man, what is, is God really still in control with all this going on? No wisdom, no counsel. Nothing can avail against him. Anytime the lies of your flesh and the enemy get in your mind and think that something can thwart his plans, remember, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail the Lord. And if you are his He is working it all out for your good and for his glory. Imagine that. No one can stop him, and he holds you in your hand. Do you think about that? Do you rest in that? Do you believe that? But on the flip side, if you trust in yourself, nothing you do can persuade him. No amount of wealth, no amount of good deeds, no amount of persuasive speech can avail him. None of your counsel, none of your wisdom. It is only his. Verse 31 is like it. A horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Don't be surprised by wars and rumors of wars. Horses have been prepared for battle. People have been fighting since there have been people. 
It's part of living in a fallen world. But no matter what plans man makes, the Lord prevails. Amen? You can make ready for battle all you want, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Christian, do not forget this. And I hope you are paying attention. There are many skirmishes. There are many little tiffs here and there. It may seem like evil is winning, especially if the news is your Bible. I want that to sink in for a moment. Especially if you spend more time exegeting the news than you do God's word, it seems like evil is winning and you may forget. But when you open God's word, we read of the cross of Jesus Christ and that is our guarantee that the final word and the final victory is his. That the end of all things, sin and all of our enemies will be put to death. The victory is the Lord's. But if we spend so much of our time living and dying on every cultural and moral victory, then we lose sight of that. There has always been war. There has always been tension. There's always been drama. But God has always been sovereign, and that will never change. Amen. So I want to land here in gospel unity in our last couple minutes. So, these unlikely friends, as Spurgeon calls them, how do we bring them together? Simple. Christ. In his incarnation, divine sovereignty meets human responsibility. Think about that for a moment. In his person, he is divine sovereignty and humanity come together. But in his work, he is the perfect connection between providence and responsibility. As the God-man, he's the perfect savior, the sovereign of all the universe, the heir of all power and glory, who takes responsibility for human sin. According to the providence of God. Acts 2, 22 through 24, you see this often in the preaching of the apostles. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. God gets all the glory. As you yourselves know, Peter's not defining human responsibility And divine sovereignty, he's declaring it. The Bible doesn't define these things, it declares it. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Don't forget, God is sovereign even over this. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. But the ones who live, here we're fine. God's definite plan and foreknowledge. But at the same time, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, you are responsible. How? I don't know. But the Bible declares it, so so will we. God raised him up. Again, the victory is the Lord's. The final say belongs to the living God. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. Praise God. The perfect one, with the perfect heart, according to the providence of God, dies. 
so that we might be redeemed and we might have new hearts because he knew how wicked and helpless our condition was. So he grants us new ones. And if you are united in him, the Father sees his heart, his righteousness. And when he weighs, the scales are tipped to overflowing because it is Christ's righteousness, not yours. Praise the Lord for that. We don't have to wrestle with this duality anymore. We rest in Christ who brought them together, the divine and the human into one. And when we struggle with this, we look to him. And he is the only confirmation that we need. Amen. If you are chosen in him, praise God. For his marvelous plan of salvation, you are heirs with Christ and heir of all things. All of his power and authority he shares with his brothers. But if you're not sure, or you're trusting in a fortress of your own imagination, seek him with all your heart. Cry out for him. Turn to him. Because the final victory is his. But apart from him, there is only death. Let's pray. Heavenly, Th Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereignty, for your wonderful plan of redemption, that you would save a sinful people for yourself. This is not a happy accident, but it is part of your providence all along that you would strike your son for us. That you would love us enough to form us to his image and give us new hearts and new spirits. We praise you for your work. I praise you for your sovereignty. We repent of our arrogance, our desire to be like you, our desire to make everything make sense. Lord, help us to hold our plans and our steps with open hands to trust your will, to trust your direction, to rest in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.